Good afternoon. I'm Callie Crossley. We're talking politics today. Joining me to talk through local and national politics are Dory Clark, Kevin Peterson, and Marvin Vinay. Dory Clark is president of Clark Strategic Communications. Kevin Peterson is founder of the New Democracy Coalition, which is based at the College for Public and Community Service at UMass Boston. And Marvin Vinay is the executive director of the Massachusetts Black and Latino Democratic Legislative Caucus. Welcome back, everybody. It's good to be here. Thank you. Thanks, Gally. All right. Well, let's just jump right in on something that uh, appears to be an ongoing controversy, and that's about EBT reform. And EBT uh, refers to uh, the cards that are used by people on welfare to purchase goods and services. Uh, So the Senate budget last week um, said, look, we got a ban on using the welfare card for gambling, guns, body piercing, strip clubs, bail and fines. And uh, there is also a criminal penalty for cashing out food stamps. And that's been a lot of attention paid to that because that's fraud has been involved in that. But uh, Senator Robert Hedlund um, says that's really not enough. And he has gone back to some of the proposals that were in a House measure and asked that that be included to shore up the kind of penalties for messing around with uh, EBT cards. Uh, What he would like to do is to end cash access for EBT recipients, um, particularly ban the spending in border states, impose fines on businesses uh, that take welfare as payment for goods, uh, forbidden goods particularly, so that would be that gambling that we referred to, and require the state to study the cost of putting users' photos on their cards. Um, what, what do you all think about this? Where is this going? Does he have a chance of, of uh, boosting the penalties that are already included in the Senate budget or not? Well, it, it doesn't sound like um, there is much of a chance of um, there being additional legislation to the to the current bill. And quite frankly, I think it's uh, it's uh, much to do about nothing. I think that uh, the charges that have been raised around the the um, so-called illicit use of these uh, of the EBT cards has been uh, so much trumped up. Uh, to 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 the extent that um, uh, I don't think that this is a much of an issue at all. You know, it really does uh, harken back to the old issue of the welfare queen, where um, where a boogeyman, so to speak, was constructed in order to punish the poor. Uh, I think there 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 needs to be some reform to it, but I think uh, sort of uh, reading this program of the cash uh, benefits or the capacity to uh, to to withdraw cash is a little bit draconian. Um, that's my guest, Kevin Peterson. Marvin Vinay, uh, you're talking to the legislators a lot. Um, do Obviously, Robert Hedlund feels like there's room for people to uh, abuse the cards. And the fact that there's some detailing of what the cards can be used for or not. So, for example, already in the budget, I didn't know, you know, there was people using it for gambling or potentially guns, body piercing. So even though Kevin says there's really not much room or there hasn't been much room for abuse or it's not as much as people say, obviously folks are concerned about it. Well, I mean, if we're going to be frank, there are, there is abuse that occurs in the system across the board. Um, however, the measurements that uh, Senator Hedlund is, is trying to implement uh, really do not satisfy the reform. I mean, he is really looking to make a drastic change without doing the necessary research to find ways to solve the problem in the bigger picture. The House has already indicated that they're willing to invest $100,000 uh, in consultant fees to try to investigate this process and figure out ways in which we can change the system to to make things better for those who are uh, on the system. But I think ultimately removing the cash benefits is a detriment to society, and it will not allow those individuals to to actually be able to to move around. And to, you know, they can't find, they won't be able to get access to uh, work. Uh, they could also be limited in some of their prescriptions that they can purchase if they don't have the cash benefits. I mean, these cash benefits are not just for, uh, you know, leisure usage. They actually are, are, are for families to, to get access to some of their, their greater resources that the card doesn't allow. So, Marvin, just to be clear, uh, if you get cash access from the card, uh, you use the cash for stuff that you need, as you've indicated, prescription drugs. And, and these are places that would not take the card itself. Is, is that what you're saying? There are places that do not take the EBT card themselves. Um, there are some pharmacies that do not at this point. 
Uh, so you would it would be required to pay that copay with the cash benefits that are that are um, a part of I your see. your benefits. Okay, Dory, what do you think? Well, I'm going to tack in from the right here, Callie. Um, I think that the the biggest problem in the in this whole scenario is the fact that Democrats have allowed Robert Headland, a Republican, to be the one getting the ink about this. Nobody mm. likes fraud. No sensible uh, voter wants people to be using their you know their EBT card to get tattoos or gambling. It's ridiculous, and I, I think that um, there is a, a charge, a common charge. That if you're looking to uh, to make reforms in the system, it's an attack on the poor. Well, this is not exactly an attack on the poor. Instead, it is a way of saying, look, if we're going to be giving you money um, for you know, for not working, then you ought to use it for the things you ought to use it for. I don't think that that should be a Republican issue. I, I actually think that uh, the Democrats would do better if they were working with Headland and uh, there was a little bit more of a bipartisan effort toward reform, uh, I think that would be better for their brand. I agree. That, um, uh, let, me, let, let, me, let me follow up, Dory, uh, just a second, because Therese uh, Murray uh, seems, at least in this piece from, from the Boston Herald, to be particularly flinty about this. And um, <laughs> she sort of reprimanded one of the other reps who was, you know, saying that, uh, that there should be support for what uh, Hedlund is, is trying to do. And uh, Murray said, listen, I, I wish I'd seen some passion from from this particular rep about some other issues rather than this. So uh, are you reading her response to mean, look, we've done stuff before and this is trumped up. There's not that much fraud. Back to what Kevin said. Or are you just reading, wish we'd been there first. And so now we have to come up from the rear. I'm reading that as Terry Murray saying, uh, look, um, I don't want people grandstanding. I run this place. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) It's like that. Okay, gotcha. Uh, Marvin, you were about to say something? No, I I just was going to add that, you know, I think that this is something that, you know, we have to pay close attention to. And, and, you know, the media has exploited this issue, which has allowed it to actually catch uh, you know, some some great uh, press coverage with with the fact that they've used uh, the incident where there was a gentleman who was calling to get bail money off his EBT card. There was another one who committed some sort of uh, fraud where they were selling their food stamps. I mean, there are going to be isolated incidents, but on an individual, those are individual basis. But for those families who are not uh, con- you know, not put- putting themselves in harm's way or contradicting the system by using their using their benefits for for other resources. It- it's it's this is not the way that you should go. And so I think that there has to become some sort of connection between both Democrats and Republicans to find a solution to this. And it's not just one party's uh, job. And I just agree. Uh, I, I just believe that in general. Uh, uh, poor people are not uh, taking advantage of this process to the degree that it's been alleged. I think that these are, if they're true, uh, I don't think any of these allegations have been been proven in court uh, in, in any substantive way. Uh, but if they're true, I think they're, they're extreme instances. So I think, and, exactly. and I think we need to be careful uh, to not pick on the poor. I mean, the poor, uh, we're not paying, paying people because... Uh, uh, they're poor. We are supporting poor people who are going through a very difficult, times. difficult part uh, point of their life, and to uh, to superimpose a draconian uh, reform uh, on a class of people when there may be extreme instances where people have abused the system. I think is uh, uh, patently unfair. But the very best way to protect that is to root out fraud and abuse, because if you have people, you Absolutely. know, who are who are in the margins taking advantage of it. I mean, no one wants poor people to be starving in the street. Absolutely. And so I, I think that if if people can feel confident that, yes, they're using this to buy food, not to go to Foxwoods, then I, I think there'll be mm-hmm. a lot more support for it politically overall. So then I have this one question. And here's the question. What are they to do for cash uh, cash at all, period. Are they not supposed to have cash, access cash for anything at all? And so if they're receiving resources from the Department of Transitional Assistance, uh, what are they now only able to use their card? And we, as we know, you can't use a card everywhere. You know, so what are they supposed to do when they need to obtain resources and other and other means? That's just my well. Concern. What I hear, what I, uh, Dory, what I hear you saying is that there has to be some demonstration uh, mm-hmm. because I wasn't aware actually, Marvin, until you talked to me right now that there are instances where the card does not work. So I mean, I don't think that the general public understands that. And my question to Dory is the button on this conversation would be at this particular time, does something like this have more resonance? You're the person that has to think about how it 
publicly resonates out here because a lot of people are hurting. People who are working are hurting and they're looking over and it's not that they begrudge people poorer than them some support, but they're like, now, wait a minute, you know, it better be for what you need it to be for because I'm out here struggling too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. In, in in downward economic times when people are, are having to, to look at their own checkbook and make difficult choices, you just you don't want to feel like someone's getting a free ride. I think I think that bothers anyone at any time. OK. All right. Well, uh, we got another uh, local story that um, I have to say that I'm going to have to you know get your good minds on because I had, I'm trying to figure it out myself. And the House has passed a bill uh, lifting item pricing, the requirements for supermarkets. I did not realize that Massachusetts apparently is the last state in the nation um, to go to scanners and require at this point. Every item has to have a uh, tag on it to say what the price is. But most pay- places now have scanners where you, you know, scan the item and you see what it costs. Um, a lot of people are saying this is an advancement. Others are saying, particularly the sponsors of the bill, or others are saying, well, uh, it limits comparison shopping because you can't pick up box A and box B right there on the moment, I guess, and look and see one is 10 cents more and the other one isn't. Um, wondering, Dory, is this... Uh, a, a good time for this kind of bill and, and why why this is, it appears to be very important uh, up in the legislature. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess it's important if uh, if the supporters give you enough money, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I mean, I, I, it's interesting. Massachusetts, um, you know, we're, we're kind of a weird state politically, as we all know. We've got, you know, these, these bizarre holdovers like uh, requiring police officers to, you know, to do the, uh, the utility details and, and things like that, some of which are costly and inefficient. And some people could argue that this is just another variation of it, that you have to have, uh, you know, a, a, a literal person, you know, sitting there and stamping, mm-hmm. you know, a hundred uh, cans of, of peas or something like that. Um, all that being said, I, I actually think as a consumer that uh, it's one of the it's one of the best things that, that we still have that that you can actually look at it. I right. think if you um, adopt this legislation, it requires scanners. Well, OK, great. You know, this you can just bring it up to the scanner. Well, guess what? In some of the larger supermarkets, the scanners are going to be two and three aisles away. You are not mm. going to carry that yeah. can of peas yeah. that far. And, it, and frankly, it just makes it easier for people to take advantage of you and and you know jerk up the prices or inaccurate right. things like that and um so I actually think that from a consumer uh, perspective, that item pricing is important. I, I think uh, even now that it's still required, there are still too few um, uh, companies that, that actually do it. Uh, there's lots of instances where I, as a consumer, walk in and uh, it's not being enforced. They're not practicing it. But I think they should crack down because the public needs to know. Good point. Uh, Kevin? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I, I, I agree with Dory here. I think that uh, having those price tags on individual items are good, particularly in uh, for, uh, again, poor people who may not be quite uh, into the, uh, the use of uh, technologies, taking those scanners around and making pr- price comparisons on two or three items. I would imagine that over the years they would catch up, but I think initially I think it would be a disadvantage to, um, to uh, poor people who are, not, um, who are still uh, hurt by the digital divide. And I also think it sort of uh, works against the elderly in a certain way. Um, mm. They're way off the grid in terms of uh, using the dig- digital divide, and they don't quite sort of have the capacity uh, physically, uh, some of them I would imagine, to uh, handle scanners. Uh, either to uh, the time that it would take to go back and forth to a scanner or to pick one up and lug one, uh, a scanner, in, uh, through, you know, through their various aisles. So I think that the price tag where you can sort of vis- vis- uh, visually uh, identify the prices of items in, in, uh, in a very discreet part of the market where they sell crackers or where they sell milk, they're all in the same area. So the, to, to visually look at those items uh, – uh, I think it's uh, still a good thing and uh, uh, would, uh, it benefits the uh, people of Massachusetts. So I'm, I'm against, now, I'm against um, Massachusetts jumping on the bandwagon on this one. Now, now Marvin, it, 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 they have doubled the fine for noncompliance. So now, I mean, you know, it used to be $2,500. It will be 5000 I mean, that's a considerable hit if a store is not doing what it's supposed to be doing in terms of making those scanners available and, and found out to be, you know, adding up 
uh, prices when they shouldn't be. So do you think that's enough of a deterrent to make uh, the going away of line item pricing okay? I mean, I think it's a it's a start, you know, but I mean, we're, we always know that someone's going to always cut the corner. Uh, that's just how it goes. I wanted to, to um, actually raise a point that Kevin made that, you know, the scanners are not necessarily individual scanners where everyone will just carry a scanner around. If you go into a department, if you go into a store like a Target where they have certain locations where they're a scanner and you'd have to take the item, carry it over. Well, I was recently in uh, New York, I believe, uh, some time ago. And when, and during that time, you know, there was a there was some some sort of product that was out that everyone was trying to get a hold of. And so you saw that there were lines next to the scanner just to mm. get a price. So mm. if you imagine that happening here. We could end up, you know, it can end up being a challenge in the store on how to manage that sort of uh, a, a case. But also, let's go back to let's talk about the family or the, the mom and pop shops who might not necessarily be able to afford the scanner or be able to afford setting up the pricing so that you can get around their stores. Because I know there's some stores, in particular some communities, that grocery stores, local grocery stores, that actually their aisles don't have the space for a scanner to fit in because now you're asking for what is already clogged to be even more backed up as you're trying to get patrons going through just to, uh, you know, purchase an item. So, Well, I think it's going to be interesting because I did not know that this bill was moving through, you know, rather quickly. So I guess more attention to it now will make uh, consumers focus on what they lose and what they gain if, if, if they feel they gain something by having these scanners. Um, I can tell you that is not going to make me happy, but who? I'm just one voter. <laughs> You're one anyway, of we got a lot more. <laughs> I got a lot more uh, to talk about uh, uh, coming up with you guys. Um, there's so much uh, national stuff to, to get to, as well as one more big local one. So I'm Callie Crossley. We're talking politics with Dory Clark of Clark Strategic Communications, Kevin Peterson of UMass Boston, and Marvin Vinay of the Massachusetts Black and Latino Democratic Legislative Caucus. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. WGBH programs exist because of you and the Boston Pops, led by Keith Lockhart and joined by star athletes as they celebrate the victories of Boston sports teams with a tribute to the 100th anniversary of Fenway Park, May 23rd through the 25th. BostonPops.org. And Aviv Centers for Living, committed to providing the rehabilitation care you need for the results you want. Aviv will open a new campus in Peabody in the fall. For more information, you can visit AvivLiving.org. And the members of the WGBH Sustainer Program, whose gifts of $5, 10 or $20 a month make up the most reliable income for the programs you love on 89.7. Learn more about sustaining membership at WGBH.org. Next time on The World, when the middle class takes to the streets. It happened in Ukraine. Suddenly, everybody understood that it's the moment that you can decide and you have to take part. And more recently, in Egypt. If this is done right... Our children will have a better life. Middle class revolutionaries, next time on The World. Coming up at 3 o'clock here at 89.7 WGBH. WGBH-TV's smash hit Antiques Roadshow is making a homecoming to Boston. Come help kick it off at our Antiques Roadshow kickoff party at WGBH's Brighton Studios on Friday, June 8th. We'll have live celebrity appraisals, food and drink, and a look back at some of the best moments from the series. It's the Antiques Roadshow kickoff party. Tickets are limited, so reserve your spot today online at wgbh.org slash antiques event. Great question. That is a great question. And that's a great question. It's a great question. What a great question. On Fresh Air, you'll hear unexpected questions and unexpected answers. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. 
Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. If you're just tuning in, we're talking politics, national and local, with Dory Clark, Kevin Peterson, and Marvin Vinay. Dory Clark is president of Clark Strategic Communications. Kevin Peterson is founder of the New Democracy Coalition, which is based at UMass Boston. Marvin Vinay is the executive director of the Massachusetts Black and Latino Democratic Legislative Caucus. Um, so the Secure Communities Program has started in Massachusetts. Uh, people may remember that uh, Governor Patrick was very firm in saying it wasn't coming here, even though um, his political uh, cohort, President Obama, had signed off on the program and it was instituted in other states. Um, uh, Deval Patrick is concerned about uh, racial profiling, which a lot of minority communities uh, have expressed great fear about. Um, he's also concerned about their just stirring up fear in minority communities, uh, period. But it's here. Uh, there's no political, it seems to be, ramifications for Governor Patrick because, you know, he's not running again. But what will be the impact of the Secure Communities Program, which a lot of people wanted to see in Massachusetts and disagreed with uh, Deval Patrick's keeping it out prior to this? Dory. I, I think that the, the political ramifications are going to be negligible across the board. Um, this is one of these programs that there's a lot of hue and cry about once it, you know, when people are considering bringing it in. Oh, you know, what's what's the ramification going to be? And are people going to be frightened? And are they going to not want to have good relationships with the police and things like this? But fundamentally, what what the Secure Communities Act is about is about uh, helping to ferret out people who are criminals, I, I don't really see that, that ultimately that's going to be uh, a long-term issue. I mean, of course, in immigrant communities, um, there's already um, a lot of suspicion in some ways about the police. I mean, I live in East Somerville. This is a Salvadorian community. Um, when they think government, they don't think 311 and trash pickup. They think juntas and machetes. And so the police are not their best friends in general. Um, all that being said, I think that it's really hard over the long term for sensible people to, to say, oh, no, I don't want a program that will identify criminals. I think, uh, Marvin, that uh, Dory's right in this sense that nobody is against a program that identifies criminals. The problem is uh, you, who are the executive director of the Massachusetts Black and Latino Democratic Legislative Caucus, is that a lot of the members that you work with are well aware of racial profiling and avenues that may lead to it. And that uh, is of concern, and that remains a concern. I think um, it's, the program is, you know, started somewhat quietly. Are you imagining that there's going to be some instances down the road where, in fact, we see some examples of racial profiling? I believe there's a strong possibility. We've had two two members, particularly that come to mind at this moment, who were uh, racially profiled, uh, you know, and were actually, in in all instances, abiding the law. You know, and, and I think that per, having happened to them personally uh, and being able to identify it, it makes it a lot easier for them to understand what their constituents are facing or, or potentially going to face with this act being passed uh, or being implemented in Massachusetts. I think one of the things that, you know, I understand Dory's point, but what I what I would also caution is to say is that, you know, nine times out of ten, sometimes you are just minding your business. And you end up in a situation that you had no idea you would have because you frankly thought you were just being a citizen walking down the street or driving your vehicle, had, you know, no problems with your registration, no problems with your taillights, no problems whatsoever. Uh, but an officer decided to look at you inconspicuously and then pulled you over. And then the challenge becomes the harassment and so forth, and you know, and, and it, it goes on. And there are a lot of cases that occur like that. And I think in this instance, what we're saying, what is being said here, is that you know now you're running the risk of looking at people and suspecting that they are actually classified as immigrants when they're potentially either not, or they potentially committed a crime that they possibly nine times maybe have not, or they have been a part of something that is much larger. And if you see one group that has, a, has, has committed a crime in one area, anyone who identifies with them are going to become suspects. And that's so, typically what you, happens. I just want to be clear that you mean legal immigrants when you said some people are. You Correct. Know, I'm talking from yeah, a legal right, immigrant right. standpoint. Yes. So, so, Kevin, last word on this. How, do, how does it get balanced and, and what will be the impact of secure communities? I well, mean, it I, came I, in. well uh, I, I ran, ironically, this is a 
piece of legislation that the governor was for before he was against it, if we, if, if we recall. But I agree where where he is now. I think uh, this piece of legislation will have a profound impact upon minority communities, particularly within the Latino community, if only for the psychological impact of racial po- profiling. So, you know, a person uh, driving down their sh- street, for example, who is of uh, Latino uh, descent, uh, may be illegal, may be here legally, may have been born here, is a citizen. But under the the aegis of this legislation, um, I would imagine that he feels or she would feel the pressure of this law of being pulled over, of being stopped, uh, maybe because she or he ran a red light, but then feeling the additional uh, pressure or or um, or uh, uh, if, if if not pressure, the duress of uh, the federal government running their background check just because uh, he or she is of uh, Latino Latino descent. As I go through Brookline, for example, I feel the psychological duress of racial profiling. I know that I haven't done anything. I haven't run a red light, but uh, racial profiling exists. So, uh, you know, the the law sort of beckons uh, uh, profound... Uh, uh, fear, I think, among some, particularly within the Latino com- uh, community, around the psychological Im- impact that this might have on the whole community. This connects back right. to the seatbelt law, mm-hmm. you know. And, mm. and oh, the, yeah, right. And, and the challenge yes, yes. with that is that, you know, when they were mm-hmm. trying to implement that with the hopes that, you know, if, if we could now look at the seatbelt and say, if you don't have it on, we're now going to pull you over. And so nine times out of ten, those who are being targeted are those who normally don't wear it, which are minority communities. Mm-hmm. And so that's an easy attack on a community that is already challenged. Um, and so when you talk about the psychological aspect, now you're wondering whether or not they're going to actually pull, pull me out the car, whether or not I'm going to be physically abused or and so forth. I mean, it, it goes on to, you know, there's a there's a whole host that goes with that. But Dory is right on right. principle, and I am where she is just in terms of uh, the the attempt to weed out those illegal immigrants, um, there may be, and I'm not sure what it is, but there may be another way to do that. Well, not not at the moment because a lot of states have put this in place and now Massachusetts has joined them, and so we'll just keep an eye on that. Sure. All right, moving on. Uh, this weekend, a rising star returning to the national scene now, a rising star, Newark, Newark Mayor Cory Booker. Um, he's really considered a rising star in the Democratic Party. Uh, some say put his foot in it on Meet the Press uh, when he commented on uh, some some uh, campaign practices that were coming up that uh, or had some were discussing should be put in place, specifically uh, addressing the latest uh, President Obama ad or the ad um, supporting President Obama, which focused on Mitt Romney's corporate past and his time at Bain and specifically around uh, equity and whether or not uh, the way that he increased equity was fair to all, blah, blah, blah. So let's listen to uh, a piece of what Mayor, Newark Mayor Cory Booker uh, said on Meet the Press this past Sunday. This kind of stuff is nauseating to me on both sides. It's nauseating to the American public. Enough is enough. Stop attacking private equity. Stop attacking Jeremiah Wright. This stuff has got to stop because what it does is it undermines to me what this country should be focused on. It's a distraction from the real issues. All right. So, Dory, um, right after that, he got jumped on <laughs> but because he's considered a, a surrogate for President Obama by a lot of of President Obama's supporters saying, what are you talking about comparing the uh, super PAC that had said that they may bring up Jeremiah Wright and make that a campaign issue for President Obama to the ad that uh, another super PAC was putting out in support of President Obama and questioning uh, Mitt Romney's relationship with the equity and and Bain Bain Capital uh, uh, in specific. And he's since backpedaled a little bit to say, listen, uh, my comments got taken out of context in this way. I was complaining about practices I think are just, you know, as he said, making me making me nauseated. But I wasn't saying that 
it, it wasn't fair to uh, question Mitt Romney's corporate past, but I just want to talk about how we're doing it. Uh, you're the person that ha- you're the person that often uh, candidates turn to to position themselves in a way that makes their policies clear. Uh, what happened here with Cory Booker, and what is the impact? Well, I, I think that Cory Booker's mistake, unfortunately, is that when you're being put out as a campaign surrogate, when you're essentially out there um, with the role of having to defend the president, you really shouldn't criticize the president. That's that's the biggest thing. Of course, they're going to jump on it because it's a good story. It's a man bites dog story. Oh, look, the guy who's supposed to be praising Obama is actually saying that, that he's doing something uh, pretty bad. And uh, and that's that's a challenge, especially for somebody like Cory Booker, who himself has been in the spotlight so much. I mean, the guy, you know, he's a young guy. He's already had two documentary films made about him. And, you know, he's always mentioned, as you said, as a rising star. And so he, he's he been the focus. Um, and it's hard to sort of switch to a supporting role where you have to kind of be a yes man and toe the party line. Um, that's a difficult transition. And he clearly uh, stepped in it a little bit in this um, occasion. I think, however, his broader point uh, is a good one. I think that uh, if you go back here in Massachusetts to 1994, when Mitt Romney was first running against Ted Kennedy, um, the line of attack started, oh, Mitt Romney, he's a corporate raider. He cuts people's jobs. Isn't it terrible? And it, it worked in 94, obviously. Ted Kennedy won re-election. But, uh, and they, tr- they tried it again unsuccessfully in 2002. I was a part of that effort, in fact, in 2002. But I actually think it doesn't work, um, not because it's necessarily despicable. I mean, you, you take what you got, right, with somebody's record. Um, if, you're, if you're their opponent, you want to try to use it against them however you can. But that being said, criticizing private equity, criticizing what Mitt Romney did, um, saying that, that he's this fat cat and trying to you know, take an Occupy Wall Street-esque, oh, we're the 99% against this evil guy. I, I just don't think it's convincing. I think that uh, Americans don't really respond to that. Um, before the rest of you comment, let me just add that since um, he made his comments, uh, those opposing uh, President Obama have pulled together an ad uh, which includes what he said on Meet the Press. It includes a couple of other d- well-known Democratic supporters saying essentially the same thing: that listen, don't you know, private equity, don't attack private equity. That works. Uh, you can t- you can criticize the way it was maybe used in uh, by Mitt Romney or his record on job creation, but equity itself is a part of the American dream and capitalism and blah blah blah. So that's an unfair criticism. So the ad that ad is called "I Stand." with Cory Booker. And needless to say, Cory Booker is very unhappy about this ad, <laughs> Kevin Peterson. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I agree. I agree with uh, Dory. Here's a classic example of a partisan person trying to be nonpartisan. And, and it really he really stepped in it when uh, when he when he went in that direction. Uh, and it was so it was so uh, interesting. Watch this whole thing play out, because then there were a number of tweets after his appearance on the uh, Sunday uh, news show. And then there was the YouTube uh, uh, semi-apology. And then there was the Rachel Maddow show uh, last night where he's he's tried to back out anymore. The interesting thing, he's never quite apologized. He's never used the A word, capital A word, uh, in this this situation, uh, which is uh, interesting to me. I mean, it uh, it makes me wonder uh, whether he wants to... um, uh, remain well, well. He wants to stick with that position, uh, quite frankly. So it it will be interesting to see how long the mayor of uh, Newark uh, remains a uh, an essential part of the uh, Barack Obama election campaign, re-election campaign. Um, uh, Marvin, before you comment, it should be noted that uh, President Obama was asked about it, and he said he uh, stands firm in supporting his ad, and that the the focus is really on Romney's record as a job creator, and that his saying that he you know increased private equity is not the point. Uh, but so that, you know, you, it, it, in the real world of being a president, according to President Obama, you have to raise the bar for everybody and not just uh, some who are wealthy. I want to say this before you comment. One of the reasons that Cory Booker would be uh, wanting to support private equity is that he's in Newark and he has benefited from his own using his own social capital to bring private equity to Newark to improve the situation there. And he's done a good job. Yeah, on I mean, one hundred million, mm-hmm. million dollars from Facebook. Right. Uh, there right. You go. Marvin. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you know, th- this is a strong lesson for everyone to know the value of staying in your lane. 
uh, mm. you know, ultimately he had a responsibility mm. when he went on Meet the Press. And that responsibility was to be a surrogate for President Obama. And his views were not necessarily what was being requested of in that in that instance. Um, and I think that if he essentially held those views uh, to his vest at a later time, they could have become more useful to him. I think if he would have stayed along the lines when it re- when it was related about uh, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, I think he was right on because that was an individual uh, who I believe he supports himself overall. And so he had a personal connection to that case. I think in this in this Bain case, we know that this has been a touting comment that has been going throughout this campaign from the very beginning and it will continue to to the very end. And so I think he stepped in some muddy waters and he's tried himself to backtrack as best as possible. But the unfortunate part now, according to the video that you've seen, I stick with Cory Booker. It's it's very important for him to to have learned the value of staying in the lane that you are supposed to be in. And that's being a surrogate for President Barack Obama. And I'm taking your point, and we're staying in our own lane and continuing this conversation. Uh, I'm Callie Crossley. We're talking local and national politics with Dory Clark, Kevin Peterson, and Marvin Benet. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. This program is made possible thanks to you and Massachusetts College of Art and Design Continuing Education. Registering for summer classes, drawing, photography, graphic design, fashion, and more. Programs for youth and adults. MassArt.edu. And Bank of America. We know WGBH is important to our customers. Bob Gallery, Massachusetts President, Bank of America. Our commitment to Boston is as strong now as it's ever been, and our commitment to WGBH is as strong now as it's ever been, and I think that matters to our clients and to our associates, and we look forward to working with WGBH for many years to come. To learn more, visit WGBH.org slash sponsorship. It ain't necessarily so. On the next Fresh Air, David Allen Greer. He's nominated for a Tony for his performance as Sport and Life in Porgy and Bess. Greer first became known for his work on the sketch comedy show In Living Color. Join us. Won't you tell us more? This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. David was small, but oh my. He fought big. This summer, you'll turn to public radio to keep up with the Summer Olympics, the presidential election, your summer reading list, the Boston Red Sox, big summer movies with computer-created aliens, battles, and creatures. Help 89.7 get to the stories you care about and give a little bit more in support of a lot more coverage. To go above and beyond with an additional gift, just click the Donate button at WGBH.org. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. If you're just tuning in, we're talking politics with Dory Clark, Kevin Peterson, and Marvin Benet. Dory Clark is president of Clark Strategic Communications. Kevin Peterson is founder of the New Democracy Coalition, which is based at UMass Boston. And Marvin Benet is the executive director of the Massachusetts Black and Latino Democratic Legislative Caucus. Uh, let me jump right into another national story that maybe is not getting as much attention as I thought it would. And I'm a little bit disappointed. And that's the Americans Elect uh, Third Party Movement. Uh, the Americans Elect Organization, which was well-funded and had a lot of stars, uh, big-name political types across the Uh, both parties across the ideological spectrum announced that they couldn't come up with a candidate, even though they had managed to get on all the ballots. Uh, A lot of people are viewing this as really the the end or or a significant blow to a third party movement, because if this couldn't get off the ground, then how do you explain anything else? I uh, before we you all weigh in, I want you to listen to Republican strategist Mark McKinnon. Uh, he was an advisor to Americans Elect, and he joined me on my show last December to talk about the promise of this democratic experience. I think the most attractive part of it in this current environment is that it has to be a unity ticket. In other words, the ballot 
uh, nominees for Americans elect will be by uh, by rule a Republican and a Democrat or Republican and independent or an independent and a Democrat. And that's what I think voters are really going to respond to is the idea that there that this is a platform that forces the parties to work together because they realize that's the only way that we can solve the problems that we've got. American voters look at the problems in Washington and say the answers seem pretty obvious. And, and yet for partisan reasons the, the the system has become paralyzed. So, Kevin Peterson, you of the New Democracy Coalition, it seemed a time that was ripe for uh, in, interest in a third-party candidate. And this particular organization was really well-organized and well-funded. Uh, are you surprised that it sort of died like this? Yes, surprised and in some ways not surprised. As, you know, a very laudable attempt, I, I, I feel, to really try to impact uh, American democracy in, in, in a more substantive way and to, to uh, break the partisan uh, gridlock that's there. So I, I, I am, um, I'm sad to, 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 to see and to hear that it's ended this way, uh, although I think uh, it's, a, it's a, a very good idea uh, that should remain a focal point as we move uh, past the 2012 elections. I think we, uh, I think there's going to be a small percentage of voters who are going to um, turn this election. Those swing voters, uh, five, ten percent of the of, of the voters in total, Dory would probably have a, a better calibration than that. Uh, just a minor number of, uh, of 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 people who will swing the election without the uh, input of. Um, or, or the, even the development of the uh, the the uh, Democratic, the, you know, the vast part of the Democratic Party and the vast part of the Re- Republican Party. So I think this was a good idea to bring the two parties together and to find some uh, consensus on national policy in a, ver- a variety of venues. And it's sad to uh, to see this go down in smoke, so to speak. But it's a, it was a very uh, valiant effort, and I think that we should come back to it in, in, in years to come. Um, Dory, what they did that I thought was clever was uh, and important. They got uh, space on the ballots yeah. first uh, yeah. before they really tried to solicit p- potential candidates to run. But what was sad about this, and when all was said and done, is that they couldn't get a candidate to clear uh, ten thousand dollar uh, ten thousand sorry vote threshold to win the the nomination, and that's not a very high number. So that. that for all of the talk about the partisanship and wanting something else and, and to Kevin's point about independence being disgusted, why? I, I don't get why this did just get more energy. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, a two-party system is baked into our political DNA for, you know, for the past 200 plus years. Um, it's it's how America's operated. I think that for a lot of people who are dissatisfied with the Republican and Democratic parties, we think, oh, you know, wouldn't it be great if there was a third party or, you know, couldn't couldn't we make some approximation of a, a you know, a parliamentary system like they have in Europe so that we could each, you know, vote for our Greens or our, you know, whatever. Um, but it's just not how the American system is is set up. And I think that consequently, there's a high bar of skepticism. I mean, Americans elect was very smart. And, uh, you know, hats off to them because they had a thesis and their thesis was, okay, if we can clear the organizational hurdles, if we can actually, uh, you know, make sure that there's a place on the ballot, maybe this magic thing will happen and a person will emerge. But it didn't happen. I think that one other factor that is shaping it as well is the fact that um, Romney and Obama. Um, now, if you're a partisan, you're probably not going <laughs> to you're not going to accept this, but um, they're fairly moderate in the scheme of things. I mean, if the if hmm. the nominees were Dennis Kucinich versus Rick Santorum, then there might have been a lot more clamoring for some kind of a centrist candidate. But uh, based on the polls of where Republicans and Democrats are, you know, Romney and Obama are. are much more in the middle. And so I think it's harder to uh, to get the mojo behind some other person. Hmm. What do you think, Marvin? I don't think the country is prepared for um, a third party quite the same. I mean, we talked about the fact that the ind- independent voter actually makes up majority of the registered voters, but yet and still they don't have enough political muscle to shift gears um, as it relates to adopting a third party. I mean, we've had third, we have a tons of third parties if you go through the history 
The unfortunate part is that I have to agree with, um, not unfortunate, but I would have to agree with Dory that, you know, at this point, you know, the America's not going to, to move in towards that direction. And we're, we're happy where we are currently. Uh, no one's too, too far right. No one's too far left. Uh, you know, and they have a they have a solid position. So in order for us to get there, we would have to be really looking to change the entire spectrum of politics and not just in the presidential seat, but you're talking about Congress as well. And, and that's where things start to get uh, a little sticky. See, I agree with Dory. I think that uh, two-party system is baked into uh, our process. But I think historically, uh, third parties... Uh, and they've come along and they've and, 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 and they, but they've had yeah they, they keep going but they, but they, Kevin. they keep going <laughs> but they've had they've had at times very influential impact on the existing parties you think about the the new republican party having a, a impact on the Whig party during lincoln's day <laughs> it changed the republican party in, in a very dramatic way you think about ross perot's impact on the the new democrat and and and, and bill clinton uh, I think that sent the Democratic Party in a different tra- trajectory, a conservative trajectory. And, and you think about what happened in 2010 with the with the conservative uh, right-wing party impacting the Republican Party uh, to the degree that it is even more conservative now. So I think uh, we may not get a, 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 a standing third party, but I think... Uh, these movements rise from time to time, and we I think the, the Tea Party uh, as well. The Tea Party, that's what I meant. Uh, yeah. The 2010. So I think that there are uh, opportunities. Yeah, yeah. They're influencers, and I think that's. But uh, influence uh, stands at one point; it doesn't move. It doesn't move mountains. And what, what we're looking here in this American elects, they're looking to move mountains, they're looking to make yeah. a transitional plan. Right. And I that is not where right. the direction. I, right. Yeah. I think. I think yeah. that was the goal. But I think uh, because, you know, the two-party system in this country is fairly static, that we should encourage American electors. I think it goes back to what what Dory Clark is good at, marketing. Because if they're not not speaking to, uh, from a grassroots perspective, to all communities, then they're not going to be able to drum the beat to get what their goals are. All right. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH and online at WGBH.org. We're going over local and national politics. I'm joined by Dory Clark, president of Clark Strategic Communications, Kevin Peterson, founder of the New Democracy Coalition, and Marvin Vinay, the executive director of the Massachusetts Black and Latino Democratic Legislative Caucus. So we can't end this conversation without going back to Elizabeth Warren and the kerfuffle around <laughs> her Native American ancestry. Uh, a couple things. One, one reason we can't end it is because because Scott Brown isn't going to end the conversation. He's pumping it up uh, as much as he can and and asking for uh, that she release her personnel records from Harvard and UPenn to see if any way she used uh, information about her being Native American to gain employment. She's denied that. Uh, you know, I'm, I was hired based on what I had done academically and, and, and not any other reason. Uh, added to that is uh, Marissa DeFranco, who is still in the running uh, for the Democratic nomination. People keep thinking Elizabeth Warren is it. She's not. Ms. Marissa DeFranco is very much a candidate. And she came out with a comment uh, this uh, n- not long ago last week saying, to be a minority, you have to look like a minority. She, too, is saying, release the records. Uh, Dory Clark, is. I thought this was going to go away, actually. I, I did. So I guess I'm just wrong. Uh, how would you place this uh, in terms of what's going to happen now? Will Elizabeth Warren be forced to release her record? She says she's not going to. Yeah, I. if I had to guess, and you know, I have absolutely no personal knowledge of this, but if I had to guess, um, there's probably a smoking gun in there. And uh, the reason is that they so desperately want this to end. And if there was a way they could have ended it by showing documentation, they would have. Um, I, I think it's a terrible situation. I mean, when you uh, start out with a candidate, the very first thing you do, even before they announce, is you sit down, you do an audit, you do an inventory of them, and you say, okay, is there anything we should know? Is there anything we need to prepare for? Have you been arrested? Have you had extramarital affairs? Do you have financial improprieties? And I am absolutely sure that Elizabeth Warren's advisors went through all the lists, you know, all the standard lists. And this would never in a million years occur to them. I mean, mm-hmm. Native American, it's so out of left field. But unfortunately, Scott Brown has been very successful in his messaging, uh, turning it into an issue that, you know, it's not about race. It's about truthfulness. It's about uh, it's about what you're uh, how you're presenting 
yourself? Are you trying to game the system a little bit? And that that's something that uh, is very damaging because uh, people don't want a candidate that they view as a little bit sneaky. All right. So, Kevin, the issue is, did she game the system to gain advantage by virtue of a Native American ancestry? There's no evidence of that. I should say uh, that both Harvard and UPenn are a little bit on the hot seat as well because their policy, both of both of those institutions announced her ancestry. It's not clear that she gave it to them or supported their doing that. But there you have it. Kevin Peterson. Yeah, uh, it, it is not clear whether she gamed the system or not. I mean, I think the, the truth will come out in the end, I, I guess, whether she's uh, she is or she isn't. I think she would be playing politics smartly if she came out and told the truth, whatever the truth is. Um, but to let this story go on for three weeks, I mean, it's developed a real footprint uh, to the advantage of uh, Senator Brown. And uh, for her to go into her nominating convention in two weeks with this hanging over uh, her head, I think, is a, is, is a major problem for her. Uh, I think uh, she would do well to come out early. We're still fairly early in the game. Uh, summer hasn't started where people will forget about this. They'll come back to this race uh, after uh, Labor Day. Uh, she should uh, uh, tell the truth, whatever the truth is about uh, her answer. I do want to disagree with um, uh, candidate DeFranco a little bit, who, who says that you got to look like a minority in order to be considered one. I think they're. Uh, I think that's patently wrong. I can think of a number of Wampanoag Indians, for example, who don't necessarily look. Uh, who are not necessarily brown skinned and may be uh, easily construed or or perceived as being uh, 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 Caucasian. Well, so you hey, don't necessarily have talk, to look we, look like a, a so called minority in order to be one. No, I, I Let's point just, out to how many black people do we know that huh. you'd pass them right by. That's so anyway, right, that's, that's right. a that's an interesting scenario. Will this uh, hurt her in the end, uh, Marvin? If she doesn't release the personnel records, I think it will hurt her if she ignores it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the opportunity exists for her to put a stamp on it and close the door and she could proceed ahead. This is a similar thing that happened with uh, between uh, President Obama and Donald Trump, you know, and despite the fact that, you know, the proof was there, Donald Trump just kept raving and raving and raving. I think uh, with the Scott, birthing issue about whether or not he issue. was actually Correct. Yeah, Thank American. You. Mm-hmm. I think what mm-hmm. I think in this case, Scott Brown, Senator Scott Brown has found a way to deflect uh, the American people to start to focus on this small this small issue instead of really dealing with the issues of the campaign. And I think that she needs to put a stamp on it and close the deal. All right. Well, we'll leave it there right now and see if that happens. Thank you all. We've been talking politics with Dory Clark, president of Clark Strategic Communications, Kevin Peterson, founder of the New Democracy Coalition, which is based at UMass Boston, and Marvin Vinay, executive director of the Massachusetts Black and Latino Democratic Legislative Caucus. Thanks all. You can keep on top of the Callie Crossley Show at WGBH.org slash Callie Crossley. Follow us on Twitter or become a fan of the Callie Crossley Show on Facebook. Today's show was engineered by Jane Pippick, produced by Chelsea Murs, Will Roselip, and Abby Ruzica. We're a production of WGBH, Boston Public Radio.